Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everyone. This is Merrick from the Cadre Journal. I'm really excited to be here again for an interview with Jasmine Butler. Uh, they recently uh, wrote a very interesting article about education uh, in organizing spaces. Um, and I'm going to turn it over to them for a little introduction. If you could just talk a little bit about yourself and your background, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, like like you said, my name is Jasmine. Um, they pronouns. I was born and raised in Memphis, so we're Southerner through and through, um, and I'm currently located down in Dallas, Texas, um, which is, you know, I always that because being from the South is really the heart of a lot of my work and a lot of my thinking. Um, but yeah, I'm a political education, you know, fanatic. Uh, I currently do climate organizing. So I work with PowerShift Network, um, where I skill up the youth climate movement. Um, but also, you know, I'm just really deeply invested in and interested in youth political education, um, really undoing all of the miseducation and propaganda that we receive, um, particularly those of us, you know, like me who went to public school and have the most watered down version of history. Um, really just interested in teaching the youth the realities of our world and kind of struggling together through ideas. Um, and imagination. I feel like one of the other things that school breaks out of us in a lot of ways is a sense of imagination, um, which is 100% necessary to, you know, build something better than what we currently have. So, yeah, that's kind of how I, how I got here. Awesome. Um, so, in your article, The Imperative of Political Education in a Miseducated Society, which I just have to say is a, a great title, like, I love that. Um, I, I'm going to start from kind of the end, because I actually feel like the ending kind of is a what I was really drawn towards. You talk uh, quite a bit about nihilism, nihilism in education and things like that. And I wanted to ask, you know, what are some of your experiences uh, with nihilism, you know, whether it be in organizing and education, just with people around you? I would love to hear more about like some of the struggles with, you know, how can we get people out of that nihilism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for me, like I said, growing up regular Southern working class um, around people who feel mostly divorced from any sense of like action or transformation in society folks who feel like they are just people who things happen to you know they've just been implanted into this invisible system called capitalism we're meant to go to school and then work for the rest of our lives um you know those are the kind of people that I grew up around and that I know mostly um and that really just creates a sense of nihilism a sense of well I'm only all I can do is work till I die and and that's it there's no other options there's nothing to be changed you know the sense of power in politics is this far off concept that doesn't really apply to real people or we don't really have anything to do about it um, and it's really frustrating because that's a very intentional idea that's fed to people you know realistically the way society and history has always moved is that people have transformed their society for better or for worse. Um, but it's a history of human change. You know, things don't just happen to us. We make things happen. Um, but it's a really intentional kind of uh, ideology to convince folks that, oh, there's nothing we can do. You know, the extent of political participation looks like voting for folks who don't care about you. Um, and then there's no sense of community. Like we're really taught to be very isolated people. Uh, American exceptionalism exceptionalism and American individualism go hand in hand. It's such a pervasive kind of undergirding 
concept of this society where we're just meant to be siloed and think that it's just me, my relationship to money, me trying to get my bag, and that's it. And all these things together create a very hyper individual, hyper isolated and unaware people, you know, and it's really scary. Like I said, I'm an organizer. I work with young people who are mostly already in the climate movement, but trying to reach folks outside of it, like folks don't care about their own planet burning. You know, how how does that come to be? How is it that we've become so, you know, self-centered and unaware of our community responsibility? Folks don't even care about basic things like the planet we all share, you know? So I've definitely seen nihilism in a lot of ways, just a sense of a kind of everyday sense of, you know, there's no point in trying because the world is the way it is. Um, but even in organizing spaces, you know, uh, I see it a lot, particularly around education. Um, and it's a, a weird perversive nihilism. It's like folks in organizing spaces know that there's so much we need to get done, but because we're always under attack, we're always reactive, we're always, you know, fighting such big monsters, nihilism creeps in and that, well, we don't need to read theory or, or read about folks past, you know, we need to be in the and go out there and work and act and do things. And it's like, do you even know what you want to go out there and do without studying and kind of working through ideas together? Um, so nihilism even creeps into our organizing spaces where it's like, there's no point in studying or there's no point in kind of working through ideas. We just need to get out there and do. And it's like, that that's a huge contradiction there that we got to work through. Um, so it really shows up everywhere. But in terms of combating it, I love this concept of revolutionary optimism, which you know a lot of people have defined it differently, but I really love this idea of, you know, for me and so many other folks who feel, who are aware, and we get to feeling this deep sense of like doom and dismay and like ugh, nihilism and just like, oh, there's no point. Like we're too far deep in the climate crisis. We're too far deep into fascism. Like there's no way we can do anything. Um, but revolutionary optimism really gets at the idea that when you get involved with your community, like when you take action against even one small issue or area, or if it's just getting involved in your local mutual aid group or, you know, finding a political home, like that does so much for your psyche and your spirit and your ability to believe that there are alternatives out there and your ability to believe that we can transform the society we're in. When we're isolated, when we're not active, when we don't have these community bonds, it's so much easier for us to be convinced that, you know, there's no other options. But when you become active, when you join an org or an organizing home, or when you just go out once a month with your local, you know, food group or whatever it may be, you have this renewed sense of like, wow, we as people can do things together and make things happen. I think that's so, so huge towards comeback nihilism. So, you know, I said this at the beginning and at the end of every single thing, it's like find an organizing home, find an organizing home. Like that's always my purpose in anything I write is encouraging folks to find other folks to be in the struggle with because that's how we combat nihilism. I think I really like that you talked about, you know, the revolutionary optimism because I that's definitely like a concept that I really enjoy talking about because nihilism isn't just like a problem for organizers like to it's like hard to like talk with other people but it's it is draining for an individual who is nihilistic you know like if if you're someone who believes like you know this is the world and this is how it's always going to be like it is extremely draining and I 100% agree that you know it's really that sense of community it's those you know organizing spaces where you can find other people who believe in that that real alternative that is when the switch happens where you're like, you know, change is possible and all these really great things. Um, and, you know, kind of, this kind of goes into my next question uh, about Paulo Freire, because I feel like his concept of, you know, like student, like, it's like, uh, not student liberation, but like mental liberation, the way he wants to teach is like, there is liberation within every individual and through discussion and learning, like that is how it comes through. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask, you know, how did you come upon Freire and how did you start applying it into your own practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, how did I first get introduced to Freire? It's definitely in college. Not every college class 
professor is ra radical by any means, not even in so-called liberal institutions, but I was lucky to have some really dope, you know, Marxist feminist professors who put me on to radical thinkers, you know, early on in, in undergrad. And so one of our teachers, you know, instead of just jumping into course content, they ground their classes in their pedagogy. They're like, I'm a student of Palo Freire. We're going to read an excerpt from chapter one so that you can know how I'm approaching this class. Because when you're you know, engaged in radical pedagogy when you're not just showing up to lecture and read from a book and expect students to play a certain role. Um, it shows up in everything you do, and it's a radically different way to be in a classroom. You know, the professors who started off with the discussion of their pedagogy, those classes were, were miles from other folks who had no real discussion of like, what is our relationship here as students and teachers? Um, so yeah, I was introduced uh, to Freire, I think by sophomore year of college, um, reading a excerpt from chapter one for that professor's class. And I was really just struck by this idea of one, like the banking model of education. So Freire's whole thing is like, there's this banking model of education where the teacher holds all the knowledge, the student is simply a recipient of knowledge um, and the teacher deposits, you know, pieces of information, slogans, propaganda, you know, historical factoids from a very particular perspective um, and they can't be questioned. They are the only one who, you know, have any knowledge. Students cannot create knowledge or have no power. Um, and really in this banking model, the role of the teacher is to create docile, obedient workers basically um but in Freire's model of education and his pedagogy is all about um problem posing education and so you know not to rehash the whole book or the article you can go read it and I talk about it more there but basically it's getting at you can't even if you're really radical and you're really you know trying to do revolutionary education you can't do what the right is doing and just come in with your own dogma and your own principles that you're just trying to teach folks and have them believe you and win them over to your side like that's not enough that's not actually building a revolution it's actually about students are they're not gonna people are not gonna be receptive working class regular people are not gonna be receptive to you coming in with a bunch of theories and a bunch of things that don't feel related you know to them um it's not gonna work. They're not gonna be interested. They're gonna be like, what are you talking about? Why is this any, at all relevant to me? Freire says when you start from people's experiences and you get them to reflect on their own world and their own experiences and their own positions and start making connections from their independent experiences and then you step in and support them to bridging those connections to systems and system thinking, that's when you have transformation. That's when you open people's minds and they realize that, you know, I've been treated as an object in society. You know, I've been treated as just a cog in the capitalist machine and starting to peel back of the invisibility of capitalism and, and all the other isms and, and, and things that shape society. Um, so yeah, Freire's all about like this teacher has to be willing to learn alongside and collaborate with students. We're, we're learning together. You know, facts are um, historic, like he's, he's a Marxist, he's a materialist. So not saying that there are no such thing as facts or, or you know, material um, reality, but rather it's important to just learn with students and, and be alongside them and recognize that the teacher always has something that they could be learning and recognize that we are not an expert in anyone else's experiences. We have to be sharing um, and learning from each other all the time. Um, and really, you know, the goal is that, you know, once folks are made aware of their position in society and are starting to recognize and see systems thinking, they will be propelled to action. So like we were getting at earlier with revolutionary optimism, like the more you know, the more you're going to be propelled to feel like you should be doing something. You're going to be less likely to be able to sit around um, and just kind of ignore realities. Again, Freire says in the banking model of education, that becomes the case. But when you're using problem-posing education and you're saying, well, oh, you just realized you're a worker and your boss makes all this money and you don't. What, what does that mean? Where do we go from there? He's like, you pose the realities of the world back to the people as a 
problem and let them think through what it may look like. And I was like, wow, that's just like mind blowing. You know, like I, it seems so simple, but for me, you know, I'm a political edu educator. I've made the mistake before of being like, okay, these are my objectives. This is one of the things that I want people to learn and to just accept because I said so. And for was like, that's not going to work. You have to go in with the expectation that y'all are going to build together. What is it that they need to learn? What is it that's important for folks where they are? And yeah, you know, sometimes it is important to, to have specific, specific objectives and things you want to learn. But if you always are going into education from this perspective that like, well, I'm no better than the banking model teachers. I just want you to believe what I'm saying because I'm the authority here. Like you're never going to, you know, really raise um, class consciousness. And that's always the goal. So yeah, very, really opened my eyes to just what does it look like to really approach radical education in a way that really sees revolution in, instead of just repeating the models of education that has created us, you know, docile folks who accept reality as is and don't believe we can transform it. Fairies like, actually, we can get folks to believe that they can transform society, but we have to peel back the layers of invisibility and kind of reveal history for what it is. Yeah, I, you're... I mean, Freire is such a like a great thinker. I I feel like he's someone that you know everyone should definitely read, and and everyone should also read your article, which we'll definitely link in the description and everything, um, because I think you do a really good explanation of what you've already said, but even more in depth of the the banking model and the problem posing model, um, which are you know really foundational in Freire's texts. Um, you know, of course, in in Freire's context, it was mostly about like. Uh, like literacy in, in Brazil, which is, you know, a very different context. But I think pedagogy is so, so important um, for anyone interested in like working with people, organizing, because education is always a part of how we learn. And that's another thing um, with, which I really like about your work is that you're, you know, you don't talk about your work as a as a fact. You talk about your struggles. You talk about the good. Uh, you use a lot of like personal pronouns, I words that I, I really enjoy because that's really how like theory and thoughts are developed is through practice. So as you, you know, you do these things, as you you try and put them into practice, that's how they're developed, um, which I think is is exactly kind of how Ferry's ideas are established and, and how Marxists think in general is that when things are put into practice, they develop theory. And when theory is put into practice, it develops more practice. So this like back and forth is really like that, that key element. Yeah. He says like word without action is just activism, not in the way that we think of activism, but it's just like a, a kind of an empty, like, oh, you're just talking. And then action without thought and reflection is also empty because what are you, what are you acting towards or how are you knowing what you're doing is effective? So he's absolutely like, yeah, you have to both be thinking and reflecting on what you're doing and actually doing something and trying and experimenting with, you know, baby steps towards liberation. Both of those hand in hand, like you said, are practices and they're necessary because if you just do one, if you're just studying and reading and writing and talking, but not really doing and working with people, you're, you're in a vacuum and you're not really moving anywhere. But at the same time, if you just go out there aimlessly, you have, you're not rooted in anything, you're not principled, you're also not going to make any move. So yeah, I'm really huge on like actively always reflecting. Like, yeah, I'm an educator. This this piece came out of me wanting to reflect on some some workshops and classes I led last year. And I was having these frustrations. Like what I talk about in this piece, I was being frustrated with. You know, people were joining a, a Marxism class and then being like, oh, why are the professor why are the teachers Marxist? Like, oh, that's like like you came to learn about this thing, but you're resistant. You know, folks were like, well, why do we have to read Marx? You signed up for a Marxism class, you know? Trust us to like lead through and, and learn together that we that we have a goal, but we have so much resistance that's seeded into us by the way that we're taught before. So yeah, I'm all about like reflecting on what we're doing. How can we be doing it better? How can we be making sure we're not 
continuing old tactics and strategies that aren't working? How do I make sure that I'm like not coming in, recreating banking models and just like being an authoritarian teacher, but making sure that like any, you know, education space I'm in, I'm a co-creator and a collaborator with the folks um, that I'm that I'm working with. So yeah, this definitely was born out of like a, this past year of struggling in education spaces with folks. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned activism. So I, I actually speak Portuguese and I learned this recently that in Brazil, they call activists militantes, which means like militants. So like even like regular activists, they call militants. Um, And it kind of comes from this history of like, you know, you're not just like speaking, you're doing, you're like putting it into work. Uh, so like anytime you meet someone who's like a, a communist activist, they call them, you know, militants or anyone who's like in the climate movement or any other LGBTQ movement, they're all militants. And I really like this kind of like framework of like, like, you know, being organized, put together. Cause I think in the US, like activism to me kind of gives a sour taste in my mouth sometimes where it's just people speaking and not doing, and it really has to be both. Um, so I really, I mean, I, th I think it was great that you mentioned that. Um, and I, I wanted to ask more about your own experiences. What were some, I would love to learn more about uh, your experience with trying to put these classes together, trying to teach people um, like the goods and the bad. Um, I know, I think a lot of people want to be better educators or they want to partake in better experiences and they want to like help facilitate those things better. So if you could just touch on some of those big ideas, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm young. I'm a budding political educator myself. You know, I'm definitely still learning and always seeking out opportunities. Um, and I love co-creating educational models. Like I said, it's if you're a sole teacher for a class or you're the sole curriculum development person for any kind of learning opportunity, chances are it's not going to be the best that it can be. Like co-creation is, is is everything. Um, but yeah, you know, this last year in 2022, I, I taught a couple of workshops. I led a workshop. Um on propaganda and news media, you know, really getting into media literacy because it's really easy for even the left to regurgitate, you know, imperialist and just like right-wing propaganda not recognizing it because we're, you know, really not great with our media. And because the US media machine is so censored, we don't even get so much news from around the world. We get such, you know, one angle version of the news from around the world. So I, want, I did a workshop last year that was really walking folks through, you know, how can we make sure that we're, we're always critically consuming our media and that we're not accepting things at face value, even if they're from our, you know, so-called, you know, liberal publications in the U.S., it's important to still be critical. Um, and a, a coworker of mine is a great, uh, a friend of mine, they um, did a session in the workshop about how to access the dark web and how to really find like news sources that aren't really available to us in the U.S. And like the dark web sounds scary, but like, when we when you start to learn about the magnitude of like U.S. censorship, it becomes necessary to kind of get around it and figure out, you know, how can I get news from on the ground in places where the U.S. has a vested interest in us not building solidarity? The U.S. does not want us to get real news from Cuba, from Bolivia, from Korea. There's so many places. Um, so it's really, you know, that was a really great experience. Um, I also um, co-facilitated this four-part workshop with People's Hub. Um, this one was Marxism for Organizers. Um, and so we really, you know, had four sessions where we were really diving into like dialectic. Honestly, you can take your whole class and dialectics it's like a huge thing but really getting folks to start understanding like what is dialectics what is this idea of contradictions and this idea that you know all of society contradictions that are always pushing up against each other um and what does that mean for our organizing you know how is marxism a methodology there's this really great piece um by walter rodney about marxism as a methodology he's like it's not just some theory that's um, irrelevant to us by some white man in the 1800s like it's a way of thinking materially about history you know um so yeah those are just some of the things that I, some like educational things i was a part of last 
here. Um, and I really learned, yeah, a lot of what I said in this piece, I really learned that even in our left spaces, we can be really resistant to creating the time that we need to for education. It is so important that we're constantly reflecting on what we're doing, our actions, our strategies, like, and a lot of orgs are realizing this right now. I'm talking to a lot of folks who are realizing, like, our strategies are not battling fascism as hard as they need to be. Like we are losing in a lot of ways because we aren't being reflective enough about is what we're doing working. We aren't taking a vested interest in our movement history and making sure that we're learning from those before us. Um, and so that's really where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm really big, my two big things are peer-to-peer -peer learning and movement history. So how can folks fighting similar battles in different places learn from each other? Um, like I said, I work in the climate movement. A lot of times when folks are dealing with, for example, pipelines, it's the same couple of corporations, but they love convincing folks, you know, in the town that they're the only ones fighting that battle, but that's absolutely not the case. Um, I'm from Memphis. They, the folks there um, put on an amazing effort and stopped a pipeline in under a year, which was like unheard of. But so much of that was connecting them with other folks in other places so they can hear like, hey, y'all have fought the same monster. You know, how can we support each other and learn from um, and that's the case in so many ways, you know, I'm really interested in disaster mutual aid and knowledge learning, you know, how can folks in New Orleans and the Gulf South who have been dealing with disaster disasters for so long, um, like commune with and support folks who are going to be increasingly dealing with disasters that they haven't before, you know, because of climate change, like how can folks learn from each other. Um, so there's so much there, you know, so organizing strategies and tactics, um, especially militant, especially guerrilla and underground and non nonprofit work, you know, um, so that's a huge component of kind of all the educational work I do, like how can we bring folks together, not me being the teacher all the time, but empowering folks to feel like they have something to teach others and that their experience has yielded wisdom that is helpful for others. Um, and then the other avenue for me is movement history. So I'm, I'm huge on movement history. Um, like I said, the United States, if you grew up in a public school, you have the most watered down, you know, five black and white photos of MLK is your sense of, you know, US left history. And there's so much more than that. Um, so I'm really big on like, how can we make sure that we're really learning uh, from the folks who've come before us, who have been fighting the same battles, maybe in different names, but have been fighting for liberation from capitalism and patriarchy and all these things for so long. There's so many lessons here and especially outside of the U.S. Honestly, right now, the most we have to learn is from South American countries like Bolivia, um, Cuba, all these places have so much to teach us because they are militant, like you just said, especially when it comes to the climate crisis, when it comes to land defense, um, when it comes to ousting fascist governments, like we have so much to learn from folks that are happening right now and from the past. Um, and I think, in, again, in the U.S., if you haven't made a vested, you know, effort to, to recover some of that history and to do your learning and to make sure that you know the history of the movement that you're a part of, if you don't do that, you're going to be repeating the wheel. You're going to be trying strategies and tactics that don't work. You're going to be compromising in places that the movement has already learned you cannot compromise on because you will, you know. Um, so a lot of where I come from in terms of um, movement education, like, but nothing comes from me. You know, I'm always responsive to the movement. I'm trying to figure out what are the gaps in political education that are helpful. Uh, what, what are, what are areas, you know, under these two umbrellas that I think I can support folks through. So it's not just like what I want. Again, not just what I want folks to learn, but what do folks seem to to need in order to move our work forward. Um, so yeah, I hope that <laughs> answered the question. Yeah, definitely did. I, I mean, it's. It I I even think that's exactly what like the cadre journal is also trying to do like that same kind of dynamic I think it's so important is yeah not only learning about what people in like other parts of the world are doing like we we have this series of like interviewing communists from other countries we interviewed some people from Ghana we've interviewed people from Latin America from Cuba and that's like a really big part of what we want to do is just kind of like opens people's minds like these 
movements, even though they're historical, yes. And I think we, we learn them as historical acts, but they're still going on today. And there's a lot we can learn about what's going on right now. Um, that's like a big part of what Cadre wants to do. And then also about uh, internal, like recently we, we interviewed the All Marxist Leninist Union at Rutgers, which is like a student organization. They're a Marxist Leninist student organization specifically. And it's like, all right, you know, there's a lot of young people who feel isolated. Like maybe you believe in revolution, but you, there's not a community around you. You feel like your school or the community is going to attack you for your, you know, ideas and learning from each other, you know, I think is exactly that key point. And learning from the past, just like you said, is super important. So I had no idea the history of that movement. And I, through having a conversation with them, I learned about it. Of course, like, I think, you know, every interview I've done has always been learning about people's history and learning about the the movements that they're part of, which they create their own history with, uh, is so important. Um, I wanted to talk uh, as well a little bit about, you have a lot of discussions about anti-intellectualism, um, which is definitely, I think, uh, like a big issue. Um, but I wanted to talk more so about that balance between like intellectualism and work. And where do you think like the good medium is for for different groups? Or like, you know, where do groups stand on those two, two things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think they go hand in hand and they can't be separated. I think there's this intellectualism that is like this academic, that gets wrapped up with academic elitism and this concept of like intellectualism as divorced, highly theoretical, like irrelevant bodies of knowledge. But in reality, intellectualism is, is much larger. It's deeper than that. It's a very simple, like anti-reading, anti-critical thinking, anti like, like all the book bans, all these kind of, you know, the curriculum changes, like all of that is tied up in anti-intellectualism because it's about pushing back on critical thinking. It's about pushing back and minimizing how much access we have to factual information and to just development in general. Um, and so it, it runs deep. Again, it's in everything right now and everything from the book bans to the way that curriculums are being changed, changed to the attacks on teachers and the efforts to privatize education. Like again, the function of US education and in, in general education under capitalist systems is to create workers, workers who don't think for themselves, workers who are not critical of the systems that they're in um, and workers who don't, you know, they aren't aware of history. They aren't aware of material conditions. They don't make the connections and system thinking and therefore they're stuck in the positions that they're in. Like that's mainly the goal of anti-intellectualism. And so it might seem like so disconnected. Like, you know, why does it matter people on Twitter are arguing that you don't need to read books, you know? And there's a real conversation around accessibility. Absolutely, like hundred percent, our educational efforts have to be accessible. Like books in the sense are not the only source of education, but wrapped up in that so often is that this idea that like, oh, we don't need to learn. We don't need to study. Everything we need to know is just in our heads. Like that's not real. That's not material. That's not rooted in, in reality and how we move things forward and how we learn. Um, so yeah, until intellectualism, it's really scary. And again, it shows in our movement spaces, this sense of, you know, again, I get it being this and this is what Ferry talks about when you just throw a bunch of names and and theories and and things at people like they're they're not going to be receptive to it they're going to be what is this this is not relevant and anti-intellectualism can easily come from that um not realizing you know when we when we go into spaces trying to just like deposit knowledge onto people that they don't yet see the relevance of we're going to create a sense of anti-intellectualism and a sense of like studying just seems like a waste of time and it just seems like you know something for artsy fartsy people or for academics like why is that relevant to us we're here to do the work you know like you said but again in order to do the work you have to be grounded you have to be principled you have to be reflective and critical and recognizing like you're not just an individual doing the work you're part of ecosystem 
They're part of a history and you have to be willing to do that study together. So again, on accessibility, there's so many ways to do that. You know, as an educator, I try not to just assign, you know, books and lengthy articles Like there are videos, there are podcasts. Like we have so much access to so many ways to get information, but it's important that we use that. When we fall to these, you know, right wing, again, these are right wing ideology that the left easily repeats without realizing it. When we fall prey to this, like, oh, reading, telling people to read is ableist, like Twitter crap. It's like, that's a right wing talking point. They literally want you to believe that there's nothing for you to find in books or in history. Like there's nothing there for you. It's all, you know, these, all these like strange, like conspiracies that come out of the right, the, like anti-critical race theory, like crap, like all of that is by really a handful of companies. Like I work with this one or on Coke My Campus. You would be surprised how many like huge Republican talking points that like determine elections literally straight up are made up by like the Koch brothers to like funnel money in a certain direction, you know? And it sounds like a conspiracy, but this is real. Again, this is what happens when you, when you act, when you're actually critical, when you're finding, you know, grounded news sources in your independent debate and discussion and then struggle with the folks that you're around you like see things you recognize and there's so much like so many invisibilized hands in the way that society that works and again the more i talk the more it's easy to start sound like a conspiracy theorist but again this is this is the material this is the real what they want to convince us of is that that's not worth looking for and that's not not worth reading and we shouldn't be reading and we shouldn't be studying and we shouldn't be reflective and you see how you get into this you get into the circle you get into the cycle of like oh you know by telling us not to read they're able to stop us from recognizing you know the harm that they're doing you know when folks uh don't know you know their legal history they don't understand the the precedent of these kind of wild laws that are trying to be passed right now and when folks don't know their movement history they're um you know not you know they're really like angry and, and frustrated at protesters because they're like you know what are you doing why are you being so disruptive not realizing that no one has ever kindly given folks their rights it's always been a struggle you know through history so there's ways that like repeat this like nar this narrative around like oh we don't need to study we don't need to read there's nothing you know we, we just need to be out there doing the work our work is not grounded and it's not moving us forward we're just walking in circles so that's why i'm always like go so hard for like please 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 don't repeat crap that it's like oh like reading is able telling people to read is ableist or telling people to study is like a waste of time it's like y'all's organizing is not going to get anywhere if you're not constantly reflective and like grounded and principled in something yeah that's I mean, I love uh, that. I mean, I think you make a really lot of a lot of great points. Um, and when we're thinking about anti-intellectualism, I mean that that history of its, you know, like uh, like capitalist and bourgeois like necessariness. Like we have to be like that. The the capitalist bourgeois state has to be anti-intellectual in order to keep people a certain way. I think is a hundred percent true. And it's so difficult for young people coming out of those systems to kind of break through. And that's why it's so important to have, you know, good educators who are able to kind of facilitate that process of going through those steps. Um, it kind of makes me think uh, I've had a lot of different discussions with people who have gone through the climate movement, have gone through like different like social movements, which aren't necessarily Marxist in nature. Uh, but, you know, people who are really interested in, you know, changing the world, they see a problem, but they don't know kind of the larger systems or they, they don't believe in the larger systems. And it's kind of funny that you mentioned like the conspiracy theory thing. Cause I feel like that's like a common thing where people are like, they, they, they go through a movement, maybe it's successful in some ways, but ultimately it fails because it doesn't have that, you know, Marxist analysis. It doesn't have that broader analysis. 
they become they do read some things and it kind of makes them like a different kind of nihilist where it's like I know it capitalism is the issue but I can't even address that and then they have this conspiracy theory phase where it's like look at all these hands of capitalism being acted upon us like there's nothing we can do and I think the next stage is the revolutionary optimism and getting people through those steps is like the hardest thing. Um, and I wanted to talk, cause you said that you, you mostly do work with um, like educating people in the climate movement. Um, I wanted to ask uh, what are some of the, what, what do you think are some of the, I don't know, like techniques for kind of getting people through those different stages. Like I'm thinking specifically about the young people who maybe they join Sunrise Movement because they're really concerned about the climate. Um, but, you know, maybe they have one one success and two failures and they're kind of like, all right, where do I go from here? Like, how do you get those people to kind of embrace a broader analysis, embrace the fact that capitalism doesn't only contribute to climate change, but it contributes racism to patriarchy, all these different things. How do you kind of uh, build that up? Yeah, one of the the main tools, and it sounds repetitive and kind of overly simple, but it's so true. One of the main tools is reflection. You know, what I, I'm in contact with some of the, the lead organizers who are kind of reorganizing Sunrise and trying to learn from their successes and failures and figure out, you know, what's a better model going forward. And the biggest key is reflection. You know, so I would say to that student or that young person who's kind of, you know, a little burnt out or a little, you know, um, jaded by their experience in a movement like that is to reflect with your fellow organizers on, on what happened, you know, what what worked, what didn't work, you know, what were all the actors, this is how you, this is the, the method of dialectics, who are the actors, you know, what were the contradictions present, you know, and really diving into that, especially like what were the contradictions you were working towards, and what were the points of intervention you tried, is when you really start to see that like, oh, it didn't fail because it's impossible to make change, it failed because y'all were attacking the primary contradiction, or it's, you know, the, the, the campaign failed because you know you didn't recognize like the contradiction you were working against you know didn't didn't overcome the other for example um so um yeah like a big part of it is simply yeah being reflective and again not in a simple way but in a way that's really getting at did we recognize you know we went at this campaign trying to stop this um oil company from you know building a pipeline in our backyard but did we recognize how the local government played a part of that did we recognize how the state government played a part of that then recognize how local businesses were taking money from the pipeline and so they were invested in it being built did we recognize that this pipeline has a history of doing this in other places like did you actually look at all those components or did y'all have a really narrow strategy that only tried to impact one part of it and then that failed and you feel like oh well the systems are too powerful we just can't overcome you know so a big part of it and one of the main tools that you try to use especially in, in spaces like that where it's a matter of like well you know nothing works because this didn't work it's like actually what what that just means is that you you experimented and you tried and now you're back to the drawing board that's really the, the kind of core component of organizing in so many ways it has to be this constant cycle of experimentation reflection critical thinking and dialogue and then experimenting again in, in di dialectical terms, it's like identifying the actors and the contradictions, determining where you want to intervene, experimenting with that, you know, solution, and then trying again, starting from the beginning. So, because it's really like, there's never going to be one method that works everywhere. There's going to be never going to be one method that, you know, um, attacks every single point of capitalism and patriarchy and all, all the other isms. Like, it's a constant cycle of realizing, you know, 
what is the core of the issue here and how can we attack that and get it? And even so, you're still not always going to get it with your first strategy or your first campaign, but it's so much easier to, to fight off the nihilism and the sense of doom or like, oh, we're never going to win or it's never going to work when you are actively engaged in that reflection with the folks that you're organizing with, because then y'all can see like, oh, this is where we slipped up. Like it wasn't that just some divine hand didn't want us to win. It's that this force over here was too powerful. These folks had hidden money that were funding, you know, the... The, the cause that we didn't realize or you know this was a key actor and we didn't you know we didn't account for this when we were doing um you know electoral campaigning we didn't account for this population and they overwhelmingly voted against us and that was the problem you know um so yeah if I can say anything in terms of like a key for educators that we can sometimes forget is like the com key thing in any of our organizing spaces is like are we re actively reflecting on our campaigns on our strategies are we learning from our wins and our losses are we actually implementing out that learning into what we do next or are we just pushing along and hoping for different results with the same tactic and that's not gonna work, you know so yeah if anything i just encourage folks to be reflective be critically reflective don't be afraid of conflict that's a, another i won't even get into that whole wormhole but a huge thing is that we have to be willing to be in conflict with each other. When we're conflict avoiding, when we think that conflict only means violence and that we can't like, you know, heads and really strategize together, when we avoid that, we really can never move forward. We have to be willing to let our ideas like bump into each other and struggle through it and see what comes out on the other side because that's how we move forward. And that's how we happen upon, you know, strategies and tactics that actually work. Yeah, I, I mean, you just described dialectics. It's like, you know, when the two ideas, the theory, um, the, the thesis, the antithesis, they come together, they create the the new synthesis. Um, and I think that's ex exactly right. Um, and I love your point about, yes, reflection, but reflection in community, learning in community, because you might reflect with yourself and that's good. You need to take your time for yourself. But when you open it up to the people around you who are struggling with the same thing, the people you're trying to organize with, um, you know, people who are have a different experience, maybe from a different, a different area, like a different city, or, you know, maybe someone older than you, um, whatever it may be, like those kind of reflections are really like, I think so important. And I know in my own organ, like in cadre, whenever we do a, um, a reading group or anything like that, we're trying to go to our next steps. We always do a crit self crit session. We kind of like, kind of get everyone in on, um, you know, all right, what could we improve on? What did what did we feel like we didn't do right? Um, and also, like I think part of that reflection is, you know, and in crit self crit is the good thing. So what were the good things, and how can we push those good things forward? Um, you know, keep the good, throw away the old, like the bad and the old and all that stuff, and keep pushing it forward. I think like you explained it like extremely well, and I hope that everyone really like learns and takes in those different things on you know how can we move forward what does good reflection look like what how can we reflect with our our, our comrades I think that's a really great point um as we're kind of wrapping up I, I would love to ask um do you have any suggestions for people for readings uh like what are some of the things you're reading right now uh things that people should look out for uh, and and also feel free to take this time to plug anything you're doing anything people should read uh from yourself as well yeah, that's a huge question. There's always a million uh, reading recommendations. I think off the top of my head, when it comes to community, absolutely all about love by Bell Hooks. Um, it's a essential text, a core text, not a perfect text. It's a great one to kind of struggle through in group because in places it can be really heteronormative and really gender essentialist. But when it comes to learning what love is, why love is the foundation of our organizing, Ferry talks about also like 
revolution and liberation has to come from a level of people. That might sound like, oh, whoop-de-doo, ha-ha, hippie, but like every revolutionary has said that it has to come through and Bill Hooks really teaches us what does it mean to really be in love and community with people around you? How can we reduce so much of the harm in our communities and our organizing spaces through having a love ethic at the core of our organizing? Um, so definitely starting with Bill Hooks. Um, also, anything Walter Rodney, I think Walter Rodney's um, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, um, Marxism and Third World, what is it, uh, I have it on the shelf over here somewhere, um, his like book on Marxism and Third World Revolutions is really huge, especially on that question of like, oh, how is Marxism relevant to us, like Black, Brown, Third World folks, like why is, you know, theory relevant to us, like he really, really dives into it and was really instrumental in like why Marx is relevant to me in 2023 as a Black Southerner, um, so that's a really huge one, um, definitely Freire, anything other than like pedagogy of the oppressed cortex for any movement educators, absolutely, um, and as an abolitionist, I got to recommend anything Mary Cabo. That's what I've been loving lately. Um, Mary and Cabo's We Do This Till We Free Us, Derek Pernell's, um, uh Becoming Abolitionist. Those are kind of some of the things that have been on my list, but uh, I could go on forever. So if anything, I'll share my like book shop book list with you to go along with this because I have plenty of recommendations for folks. And anything of your of your own work you think people should check out? Um, or maybe where I will where plug they can find our you. convergence. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. Okay. So you can find me on my website, which is jasmine-butler.com. That also links to my Substack. Um, so more of my writing there, more coming soon, um, as well as I post any workshops or classes I'm teaching there. Um, and then while I'm here, I got to plug our convergence. So coming up this 8th through 8th, 2023 in Bobancha or colonially known as New Orleans, Louisiana, um, PowerShift Network is going to be having a, where we're trying to bring together thousands of young people for three days of like skill building, connections, like really grounding in the Gulf South as a forefront of the climate crisis, both organizing and its impacts. Um, really trying to scale up the climate movement, get us radically like grounded and principled together, but not just the climate movement. We're really trying to dig into the fact that climate is absolutely intersectional. It digs in abolition, it deals in land, it deals in indigenous queer sovereignty and black sovereignty, all different things. Um, so I really invite folks to check out our website. You can look up PowerShift 23 um, and find out about it and register. Um, it's going to be an amazing time. I'm so excited to connect with other organizers across movements, other educators. It's going to be a great time to just learn and do a lot of what we're talking about today. So critical reflection and bringing in new information and figuring out how we can then go home and make our movements better. So I'll, I'll just plug that here. That's awesome. And I have to say that I definitely agree. Walter Rodney, that is like a, a crowd favorite here at the Cadre Journal. We absolutely love Walter Rodney um, and the Rodney Foundation and everything that that Rodney's done and the foundation has done. So I definitely think Groundings with My Brothers is another really great one that I just have to say because that was like such a great like list. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned it before in the in the interview. But thank you so much, Jasmine. This was a, a really wonderful uh, interview. Uh, hopefully we can talk again and we'll we'll keep in contact about things that you're doing in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much. I love Cadre. Y'all are doing great work and I can't wait to chat more. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too.